Chapter Six of Charles the Bold, Last Duke of Burgundy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mark DeSanzo. Charles the Bold, Last Duke of Burgundy by Ruth Putnam. Chapter Six, The War of Public Weal, fourteen sixty-four to fourteen sixty-five. The era of good feeling between Louis the Eleventh and his Burgundian kinsmen was of short duration, and no wonder. The rich rewards confidently expected as fitting recompense for five years' kindness more than cousinly towards a penniless refugee were not forthcoming. The king was lavish in fine words, and not chary in certain ostentatious recognition towards his late host but the fairly munificent pension together with the charge of normandy settled upon the count of charolais proved only a periodical reminder of promises as regularly unfulfilled on each recurring quarter day while the post of confidential adviser to the inexperienced monarch which philip had intended to occupy remained empty louis put perfect trust in no one but turned now to one counsellor now to another and used such fragments of advice as pleased his whim and paid no further heed to the giver not long after louis's coronation there occurred that change in philip's bodily constitution that comes to all active men sooner or later his health began to give way his energies relaxed and matters that had been of paramount importance throughout his career were allowed to slip into the background of his desires in the famous treaty of fourteen thirty five no article was rated at greater importance than that which placed the towns on the somme in philip's hands subject to a redemption of two hundred thousand gold crowns whether charles the seventh had actually pledged himself that the mortgage should hold at least during philip's life does not seem assured but that any sum would be insufficient to induce the duke to release them unless his intellect were somewhat deadened is clear in fourteen sixty two when he recovered from a sharp attack possibly the result of his indulgence in the pleasures of the table during the prolonged festivities at paris he did not regain his previous vigor this was the time by the way when opportunity was afforded his courtiers to prove that devotion to their seigneur outweighed personal vanity when his head was shaved by order of the court physician more than five hundred nobles sacrificed their own locks so that their becoming curls might not remind their chief of his own bald head the sacrifice was not always voluntary adds an informant philip forced compliance with this new fashion upon all who seemed reluctant to be unnecessarily shorn of what beauty was theirs by nature's gift this servility may have consoled philip for the deprivation of his hair in his depressed condition any solace was acceptable it was just when the duke was in this enfeebled state that louis through the mediation of the croix pushed forward his proposition to redeem the towns and philip agreed possibly relying upon the chance that it would be no easy matter for the french king to wring the required sum from his impoverished land philip's assent was however promptly clinched by a cash payment of half the amount the remainder followed amiens abbeville and the other towns valuable bulwarks for the netherland provinces fine nurseries for the human material requisite for burgundian armies rich taxpayers as they were all tumbled into the outstretched hands of the duke's wily rival the transaction was hurried through and completed before a rumor of its progress came to the ear of the interested heir 
charles was in holland sulking and indignant he had expected good results from his tender devotion during his father's acute illness a devotion shared by isabella of portugal who hastened to her husband's bedside from her convent seclusion when philip was in need of her ministrations but in his convalescence philip renewed his friendship for the croix whom charles continued to distrust with bitterness that varied in its intensity but which never vanished from his consciousness the young man felt misjudged misused and ever suspicious that personal danger to himself lurked in the air of his father's court the various rumors of plots against his life may not all have been baseless at last one of his own cousins the count of nevers was accused of having recourse to diabolic means of doing away with the duke's legitimate heir three little waxen images were found in his house and it was alleged that he practised various magical arts withal in order to win the favour of the duke and of the french king and still worse to cause charles to waste away with a mysterious sickness the accusations were sufficient to make nevers resign all his offices in his kinsman's court and retire post haste to france had he been wholly innocent he would have demanded trial at the hands of his peers of the golden fleece as behooved one of the order but he withdrew undefended and left his tattered reputation fluttering raggedly in the breeze of gossip charles stayed in holland aloof from the ducal court until a fresh incident drove him thither to give vent to his indignation only three days had philip de comines been page to duke philip then resident at lille when an embassy headed by morvilliers chancellor of france was given audience in the presence of the burgundian court including the count of charolais the future historian then nineteen years old was keenly alive to all that passed on that november fifth fourteen sixty four morvilliers used very bitter terms in his assertion that charles had illegally stopped a little french ship of war and arrested a certain bastard of robempre on the false charge that his errand in holland where the incident occurred was to seize and carry off charles himself moreover one knight of burgundy sir olivier de la marche had caused this tale to be brooded everywhere quote, especially at bruges whither strangers of all nations resort this had hurt louis deeply and he now demanded through his chancellor that duke philip should send the same sir olivier de la marche prisoner to paris there to be punished as the case required whereupon duke philip answered that the said sir olivier was steward of his house born in the county of burgundy and in no respect subject to the crown of france philip added that if his servant had wrought ill to the king's honour he the duke would see to his punishment as to the bastard of rubempre true it was that he had been apprehended in holland but there was adequate ground for his arrest as his behaviour had been strange at least so thought the count of charolais philip added that if his son were suspicious quote, he took it not of him for he was never so but of his mother who had been the most jealous lady that ever lived but notwithstanding quoth he that myself never were suspicious yet if i had been in my son's place at the same time that this bastard of rubempre haunted those coasts i would surely have caused him to be apprehended as my son did in conclusion philip promised to deliver up rubempre to the king were his innocence satisfactorily proven Mauvillier then resumed his discourse enlarging upon the treacherous designs of francis duke of brittany with whom charles had lately sworn brotherhood at the very moment when he was the honoured guest of king louis at tours during this discussion the count of charolais became very restive 
finally he could no longer endure Beauvilliers' indirect slurs and quote, made offer eft soon to answer being marvellously out of patience to hear such reproachful speeches used of his friend and confederate but Beauvilliers cut him off saying my lord of charolais i am not come of embassage to you but to my lord your father the said earl besought his father diverse times to give him leave to answer who in the end said unto him i have answered for thee as methinketh the father should answer for the son notwithstanding if thou have so great desire to speak bethink thyself to-day and to-morrow speak and spare not then morvilliers to his former speech added that he could not imagine what had moved the earl to enter into the league with the duke of brittany unless it were because of a pension the king had once given him together with the government of normandy and afterwards taken from him in regard to rubempre camine adds to his story charles's own statement given on the morrow quote, notwithstanding i think nothing has ever proved against him though i confess the presumption to have been great five years after i myself saw him delivered out of prison this from camine lamarche is less detailed in his record of the rubempre incident quote, the bastard was put in prison and the count of charolais sent me to esdin to the duke to inform him of the arrest and its cause the good duke heard my report kindly like a wise prince in truth he at once suspected that the craft of the king of france lurked at the bottom of the affair shortly afterwards the duke left esdin and returned to his own land which did not please the king of france who dispatched thither a great embassy with the count de at the head demands were made that i should be delivered to him to be punished as he would because he claimed that i had been the cause of the arrest of the bastard of rubempre and also of the duke's departure from esdin without saying adieu to the king of france but the good duke moderate in all his actions replied that i was his subject and his servitor and that if the king or any one else had a grievance against me he would investigate it the matter was finally smoothed over adds lamarche and louis evinced a readiness to conciliate his offended cousin in spite of lamarche the matter proved to be one not easily disposed of by soft phrases flung into the breach charles obeyed his father and prepared in advance his defence to the chancellor when he had finished his own statement about rubempre he proceeded to the point of his friendship with the duke of brittany declaring that it was right and proper and that if king louis knew what was to the advantage of the french sovereign he would be glad to see his nobles welded together as a bulwark to his throne as to his pension he had never received but one quarter nine thousand francs he had made no suit for the remainder nor for the government of normandy so long as he enjoyed the favor and good will of his father he had no need to crave favor of any man Quote, i think verily had it not been for the reverence he bore to his said father who was there present continues the observant page and to whom he addressed his speech that he would have used much bitterer terms in the end duke philip very wisely and humbly besought the king not lightly to conceive an evil opinion of him or his son but to continue his favor towards them then the banquet was brought in and the ambassadors took their leave as they passed out charles stood apart from his father and said to the archbishop of narbonne who brought up the rear of the little company quote, recommend me very humbly to the good grace of the king tell him he has had me scolded here by the chancellor but that he shall repent it before a year is past 
his message was duly delivered and to this incident camine attributes momentous results exasperated at the nonchalant manner in which louis ambassadors treated him indignant at the injury to his heritage by the redemption of the towns on the somme and further already alienated from his royal cousin through the long series of petty occasions where the different natures of the two young men clashed in this year fourteen sixty four charles was certainly more than ready to enter into an open contest with the french monarch it was not long before the opportunity came for him to do so with a certain eclat in the early years of his own freedom before he learned wisdom louis the eleventh had planted many seeds of enmity which brought forth a plentiful crop and the fruit was an open conspiracy among the nobles of the land one of the causes of loosening feudal ties was the gradual growth of the body of standing troops instituted in fourteen thirty nine by charles the seventh these in the regular pay of the crown gave the king a guarantee of support without the aid of his nobles by the date of louis's accession certain ducal houses besides that of burgundy had grown very independent within their own boundaries orleans anjou bourbon not to speak of brittany now the efforts to curtail the prerogatives of these petty sovereigns begun by charles the seventh were steady and persistent in the new reign they had no longer the power of coining money of levying troops or of imposing taxes while the judicial authority of the crown had been extended little by little over france then their privileges were further attacked by louis's restrictions of the chase it was the accumulation of these invasions of local authority added to a real disbelief in the king's ability that led to a formation of a league among the nobles designed to check the centralization policy of the monarch a league of public weal to form a bulwark against the tyrannical encroachments of their liege lord not to follow the steps of the growth of this coalition it is sufficient for the thread of this narrative to say that it comprised all the great french nobles the princes of the blood as well as others men whom louis had flattered as well as those whom he had slighted alike fell from his standards distrustful of his ability to withstand organized opposition and they threw in their lot with the protesters so as not to miss their share of the spoil the count of charolais as already mentioned was in a mood when his ears were eagerly open to overtures from louis critics the redemption of the towns on the somme he was unable to prevent but the affair left him very sore shortly after its completion the count did indeed succeed in depriving the Qua of their ascendancy over the duke of burgundy but when that long-desired victory was attained the towns had one and all accepted their transfer and were under french sovereignty when the count joined the league the hope of ultimate restoration was undoubtedly prominent among the motives for his own course of action though his intimacy with the chief leader of the revolt the duke of brittany might easily have led to the same result toward francis of brittany louis the eleventh had been especially wanting in tact during the first months of his reign the king treated him as a vassal of france while the duke held that he and his forebears owed simple homage to the crown not dependence therefore in order to resist being subordinated the duke of brittany resolved not to leave his estates except in a suitable manner his messages to the king were sent in all ceremony he rendered proper homage declared his readiness to serve him as a kinsman and as a vassal for certain territories but demanded freedom to exercise his hereditary rights and to enjoy his hereditary dignities quote, unquote, rude and strange were the terms employed by the king in response to these statements 
and then he proceeded to encroach still farther on the duke's seigneurial rights by attempts to dispose of the hands of breton heiresses in unequal marriages and to arrogate to himself other rights all sufficient provocation to justify francis of brittany in becoming one of the chiefs in the league very delightful is chastelain's colloquy with himself as to the difficulty of maintaining perfect impartiality in discussing the cause of this franco-burgundian war but unfortunately the result of his patient efforts is lost olivier de la marche and philip de Camines, however were both present in the burgundian army and their stories are preserved la marche had reason to remember the first actual engagement between the royal and invading forces at montlaret because on that day i was made knight he does not say as does Camines, that this battle was against the king's desire louis had hoped to avoid any use of arms and to coerce his rebellious nobles into quiescence by other methods not that they characterized themselves as rebellious far from it clear and definite was their statement that in their obligation quote, to give order to the estate the police and the government of the kingdom the princes of the blood as chief supports of the crown by whose advice and not by that of others the business of the king and of the state ought to be directed are ready to risk their persons and their property and in this laudable endeavor all virtuous citizens ought to aid thus wrote charles to the citizens of amiens and the words were typical of similar appeals made in every quarter of the realm by the various feudal chiefs to their respective subjects in truth this war ostentatiously called that of the public wheel was but a struggle on the part of the great nobles for local sovereignty the wheel demanded was home rule for the feudal chiefs the war of public wheel was a fierce protest against monarchical authority against concentration a king indeed but a king in leading strings was the ideal of the peers thus matters stood in june fourteen sixty five louis almost alone deserted by his brother the duke of berry and his nobles banded together in apparent unity hedged in by their pompous and self-righteous assertions that all their thoughts were for the poor oppressed people whose burdens needed lightening of all the great vassals gaston de foix was the single one loyal to the king the part of the great duke fell entirely to the share of the count of charolais a small force was levied for him within the netherlands and he started for paris where he hoped to meet contingents from the two burgundies and his brother peers of france with their own troops his men were good individually but they had not been trained to act as one and there was no coherence between the different companies july fourteen sixty five found charles at st denis the appointed rendezvous he was first in the field while he awaited his allies his little army became restive at the situation in which they found themselves fifty leagues from burgundian territory with no stronghold as their base it was urged again and again upon the count that his first consideration ought to be his men's safety his allies had failed him he should retreat Quote, i have crossed the oise and the marne and i will cross the seine if i have but a single page to follow me was the leader's firm reply to these demands the leaguers were slow to keep their pledges and charles decided that it was his mission to prevent louis from entering his capital to which he was advancing with great rapidity from the south to carry out this purpose charles disregarded all protests crossed the seine at st cloud and made his way to the little village of longjumeau whither he was preceded by the count of st paul commanding one division of the burgundian army 
Montlaret was a village still farther to the south, and here it was that La Marche and other gentlemen were knighted. This ceremony was evidently part of the Count's endeavor to encourage his followers, all unwilling to risk an engagement before the arrival of the Allies. To the king it was of infinite advantage that no delay should occur. Nevertheless, it was Charles who opened active hostilities on July 15th with soldiers who had not broken their fast that day. Armed since early dawn, wearied by a forced march with a July sun beating down upon their heads, their movements hampered by standing wheat and rye, the men were at a tremendous disadvantage when they were led to the attack. It was a hot assault. No quarter was given, many fled. At length Louis found himself abandoned by all save his bodyguard. Pressed against the hill that bounded the grain fields, the king at last retreated up its slope into a castle on its summit. Charles rode impetuously after the retreating royalists. Separated from his men, he fell among the royal guard at the gate of the castle. There was a vehement assault, resisted as vehemently by his meager escort. Several fell, and Charles himself received a sword wound on his neck where his armor had slipped. Recognized by the French, he might have been taken or slain in his resistance when the bastard of Burgundy rode in and rescued him. Very desperate seemed the Count's condition. When night fell, no one knew where lay the advantage. The fugitives spread rumors that the king was dead and that Charles was in possession. Others carried the reverse statements as they rode headlong to the nearest safety. It was a rout on both sides with no credit to either leader. But in the darkness of the night the king managed to slip out of his retreat and march quietly towards the greater security of Paris. It was a very shadowy victory that Charles proudly claimed. All through the night of July 15th, the Burgundians were discussing whether to flee or to risk further fighting against the odds all recognized. Daybreak found the council in session when a peasant brought tidings that the foe had departed. The fires in sight only covered their retreat. To be sure, that same foe had taken Burgundian baggage with them to Paris, but what of that? The Burgundians held the battlefield, and they made the best of it. On July 16th, Louis supped with the military governor of Paris, and, quote, moved the company, nobles, and ladies to sympathetic tears by his touching description of the perils he had met and escaped, end quote. Charles, meanwhile, effected a junction with his belated allies, Francis of Brittany and Charles of France, the Duke of Berry, at Etampes. Thither, too, came the Dukes of Bourbon and of Lorraine, but none of these leaguers could claim any share in the Battle of Montlhéry. While these peers perfected their plans to force their chief into redressing the wrongs of the poor people, the king was showing a very pleasant side of his character to the Parisian citizens. In response to a petition that he should take advice on the conduct of his administration, he declared his perfect willingness to add to his council six burgesses, six members of Parlement, and the same number from the university. Besides this concession, he relieved the weight of the imposts and hastened to restore certain financial franchises to the church, to the university, and to various individuals. Three weeks were consumed in establishing friendly relations in this all-important city, and then the king departed for Normandy to levy troops and to collect provisions for a siege. There was need for this last, for the Allies had moved up to the immediate vicinity of Paris. Before the king's return to his capital on August 28th, a formidable array was encamped at Charenton and its neighborhood. More formidable, however, they were in numbers than in strength. 
like all confederated bodies there was inherent weakness for there was no leader whom all would be willing to obey the duke of berry heir presumptive to the throne was the only one among the peers whose birth might have commanded the needful authority but he had not sufficient personal character to assert his position so the confederates remained a loose aggregation of small armies the longer they remained in camp the weaker they grew the more disintegrated a pitched battle might have been a great advantage to these gallant defenders of the public weal of france and that was the last desire of their antagonist many skirmishes took place between the parisians and the leaguers but no engagement once indeed there were hurried preparations on the part of the burgundians to repulse an attack of whose imminence they were warned by a page before break of day one misty morning yes there was no doubt the pickets could see the erect spears and furled banners of the enemy all ready to advance upon the unwary camp quick were the preparations there were no laggards the duke of calabria was more quickly armed than even the count of charolais he came to a spot where a number of burgundians the count's own household stood by the standard among them was comines and he heard the duke say quote, we now have our desire for the king is issued forth with his whole force and marches towards us as our scouts report wherefore let us determine to play the men so soon as they be out of the town we will enter and measure with the long l by these words he meant that the soldiers would speedily have a chance to use their pikes as yardsticks to measure out their share of the booty false prophet was the duke that time when the daylight grew stronger the upright spears and furled banners of the advancing foe proved to be a mass of thistles looming large in the magnifying morning mist the princes took their disappointment philosophically enjoyed early mass and then had their breakfast the young Camine is surprised that paris and her environs were rich enough to feed so many men gradually the aspect of affairs changed negotiating back and forth became more frequent the disintegration of the allies became more and more evident louis the eleventh bided his time and then took the extraordinary resolution to go in person to the camp at charenton to visit his cousin of burgundy with a very few attendants practically unguarded he went down the seine his coming had been heralded and the count of charolais stood ready to receive him with the count of st paul at his side quote, brother do you pledge me safety for the count's first wife was sister of louis to which the count responded yes as one brother to another nothing could have been more genial than was the king he assured charles that he loved a man who kept his word beyond anything veracity was his passion charles had kept the promise he had sent by the archbishop of narbonne and now he knew in very truth that he was a gentleman and true to the blood of france further he disavowed the insolence of his chancellor towards charles and repeated that his cousin had been justified in resenting it quote, you have kept your promise in that long before the day end quote. then in a friendly promenade louis gave an opportunity to charles and st paul to state informally the terms on which they would withdraw from their hostile footing and count the wheel restored to the oppressed public whose sorrows had moved them to a confederation distasteful as was every item to louis he accepted the requisition of those who felt that they were in a position to dictate and after a little more parleying at later dates the treaty of conflans was duly arranged it was none too soon for the allies they could hardly have held together many days longer in the midst of the jealousies rife in their camps the king paused at nothing to his brother he gave normandy 
to charles of burgundy the towns on the somme with guarantee of possession for his lifetime while the count of st paul was made constable of france bologna and guienne too were ceded to charles lesser places and pensions to the other confederates the contest ended with complete victory for the allies who were left with the proud consciousness that they had set a definite limit to royal pretensions at least on paper after the treaty was signed the king showed no resentment at his defeat but urged his cousin to amuse himself a while in paris before returning home charles was rash but he had not the temerity to trust himself so far pleading a promise to his father to enter no city gate until on paternal soil he declined the invitation and soon returned to the netherlands where his own household had suffered change during his absence the countess of charolais had died and been buried at antwerp charles is repeatedly lauded for his perfect faithfulness to his wife but her death seems to have made singularly little ripple on the surface of his life the chroniclers touch on the event very casually laying more stress on the opportunity it gave louis the eleventh to offer his daughter anne as her successor than on the event itself End of chapter six